Welcome to the City Beautiful Church podcast. Thank you for taking the time to join our family as we strive to live together in heavenly reality. For more great content, visit us online at citybeautiful.ch. All right, welcome everyone. Welcome. Go ahead and uh, move back to your seats. Swim back to your seats through the through the mist, if necessary. Um, welcome everyone to citybeautiful.ch. We're going to update the name of the church. I, we're going to change it. It's either citybeautiful.ch or uh, Neon Cross in the Mist. So we're going to we're going to put it to a, a, a vote after after our gathering. No, I'm just kidding. Welcome to City Beautiful Church. My name is Ryan. Uh, I'm pastor here, and today we're starting this brand new series called Signposts in the mist, and I'm, I feel like, I seriously, I feel like I say that I'm excited about everything that I say. I don't know that I've actually given a sermon that I didn't really want to give, because I just, I, I don't know, I feel lucky that I actually get to do what I love and what I'm passionate about. And if there's one thing that I'm discovering more and more about my calling, um, you know how you, how you continue to feel it out, like the Lord gives you like this very broad understanding of your calling, it has to do with your personality and then your gifts and your passions, and as you kind of step out in faith, even with this last series and boldly exploring who you're called to be, what's your specific aspect that you're bringing to the thing, um, you, you gain more language for what that is, and so even for any of us who are called to be teachers, um, the, there's, a, there's a many versions of being a teacher as there are the shades of the color green. We're all green, uh, but all these infinite shades. I don't know if you go to Home Depot and you just stare at like the, the wall of paints and you go, oh my gosh, what do you mean by green? Like, um, we, I just bought a house this week, which is pretty awesome. Thank you. So you're stuck with me for the next several years. Uh, but going around with a real estate agent, I wasn't aware that there's so many grays like this house we bought, most of it is grayish. <laughs> Somewhere between gray and beige. And some grays favor a little bit more of like the green side. Some of them are a little yellower. Some of them are a little purplier. So it's gonna be really interesting painting this house. But anyway, one of the things that I've discovered about my calling is I'm really passionate especially about scripture. And one of the things that I said last week that I feel as a church, like that big question, what are we even doing here? Why did you guys choose to show up here when you can do anything you want on a Sunday morning? It's because we come together to tell one another the story of God over and over again in a way that it interprets who we are. It tells us who we are. And we do that through song. We do that through symbol, whether it's communion or giving, whatever it might be. We do that through investing ourselves in, uh, in the scriptures. And that's the piece that I feel is my best contribution to the world is to really help people learn how to open up the scriptures so that we might encounter Jesus in them and then in turn be transformed. And that's very much what this series is going to be about, Signposts in the Mist. I kind of have a two-fold purpose for this series. Number one, I want us to rescue the Old Testament from how many of us have been taught to read it and to give it back its proper place in the Christian faith, in, in our journey. And the second thing is that when we, when we rescue and redeem the Old Testament, we recognize what it was actually for is pointing us towards Jesus as the exact representation of what God is truly like. And so what it also does is it actually elevates the name of Jesus. I don't want anybody to think for a moment in this next season we're seeking to diminish the scriptures. 
That's not what we're going to do. We're going to open up the scriptures so that we can actually elevate who Jesus is. And that's really my heart uh, for this series. And so today I wanna begin specifically by talking, uh, like using how Jesus himself came to the Old Testament and how he used that to prove who he was. And then next week we're gonna be looking at how those early disciples, what was their attitude in jumping into the scriptures that they had and how did they learn to see those things both through the lens of Christ because they've been radically transformed by encountering him, but also going back to the Old Testament and seeing all of this evidence, all these signposts all along the way where God is speaking in partiality what he speaks in the fullness in Jesus. So let's pray, I'm gonna pray for you, uh, and if you would pray for me, please. Heavenly Father, we testify to the reality that you're here uh, and you're with us. Lord, it's so sweet to have these times of worship where not only do we, do we have people that specifically have been called to, to stand on a stage and to lead us into worship, but you've, you've given all of us a voice. Um, Lord, it's so, such a beautiful symbol for all of us to come here uh, to sing these songs over, over one another, that we're singing to one another's spirits as much as we are to our own and in some beautiful and dynamic way that binds us closer to you uh, and it binds us closer together. And so Lord, we ask that your spirit would continually uh, reveal who you are to us as we continue worship uh, through the digging into the scripture, through the the art of the sermon, um, that we would be transformed by what we find there, that we would leave this place with joy and with freedom, um, excited to continue to discover the, the height and the width and the depth of who you are and the love that you have for us. And so may the words of my lips and the meditation of all of our hearts be ever pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer, amen. So let's begin here. We have a problem with the Old Testament. We have a problem with the Old Testament. And I can go into all of the historical analysis of why we've ended up in this place that so often culturally we just don't know what to do with the Old Testament. We're, we're afraid of it, we, we hide from it, we misuse it and abuse it. And we can go into all the analysis and it's very, very boring, but it's important to kind of recognize where we're at now. But basically I think there's two ways that modern Christians often treat the Old Testament scriptures. The first one is that we generally avoid the Old Testament. Um, because we have a very hard time reconciling the God that we perceive in the Old Testament with the God that's received in the New Testament. And there was actually this early heresy in like the second and third century called Gnosticism, and it's still very prevalent today. And what the Gnostics said basically was, oh, there was this God in the Old Testament, and he was kind of nasty and brutish, and then there was this other God revealed in Jesus in the New Testament, and he came to beat up and kill that old God, and that's how we explain it. And we would, yeah, maybe we would laugh at that now. We think, oh, that's so silly. But, you know, a lot of times subconsciously, that's, that's our attitude when it comes to the Old Testament. Um, I was doing a, 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 a Bible study here a couple of years ago called How to Read the Bible and Not Join a Cult. It's one of my favorite ones that I've done. And um, there was this lady that was part of the group and she said, you know, I've been a Christian for 25 years and I've never read the Old Testament. I just don't know what to do with it. It's too confusing. Uh, and I, on one level, I really understand that. I think there's, a, there's an aversion and a fear to the Old Testament because some of it is a little hard for us um, to, to really grasp. Um, but I think the problem is that when we avoid the Old Testament, we miss the plot of the story, okay? Imagine trying to watch The Empire Strikes Back without a new hope. 
Like you, the Han Leia thing doesn't make a lot of sense, and you don't really know why there's this disembodied voice of uh, you know Sir Alec Baldwin like over the not Alec Baldwin, good grief. <laughs> it sh- if they ever re redo it, it should be Alec Baldwin. Who am I thinking of? Uh, Alec Guinness. Thank you. Like Alec Guinness's voice is kind of floating through the movie, and you're like, I don't understand this, you know. Or uh, in the spring, I was talking to my parents, and they went to see the new Alien movie, Alien Covenant. And my mom was like, yeah, it was just okay. I said, did you see Prometheus? She said, no. I was like, I, I don't even know if Alien Covenant would make sense. You know, like the second movie in like a trilogy or whatever, it doesn't make a lot of sense if you don't have the first one. And a lot of times that's what happens to us when we just avoid the Old Testament. We are, we're dropped into the Gospels and there's all of these symbols and this language that these people are using that we don't recognize because they're kind of already in on the story. And it's really hard for us to understand what the real plot is of the story if we don't have that first piece. Do any of the gospels or even the epistles make sense if we don't have that Old Testament context? And so if we don't avoid the Old Testament, sometimes what we do is that we flatten the Old Testament. And basically what I mean by this is that we reduce the scriptures in general, but the Old Testament specifically, into becoming some sort of a user's manual for life that we can kind of pick out certain bits and it's just, it's there to help us to live to become better people. And unfortunately what happens then is that we say, well, this, this verse from Leviticus 17, verse 34, kind of weighs the same as this Second John chapter three, verse five verse, and it's all kind of the same. Everybody's just kind of going along and doing their thing. Jesus shows up somewhere there about two thirds of the way through the book, and then it just kind of continues on. And the problem when we flatten the old text the Old Testament is that, you know, when we avoid it, we miss the plot of the story, but if we flatten the scriptures, we actually miss the theme of the story. We miss what the story is actually about. More specifically, we miss who the story is pointing us to. And this leads us to a lot of problems when we begin to use the Old Testament. We weigh it the same as the New Testament. We weigh it the same as the words of Jesus, and it leads us to some very unfortunate conclusions about the world around us. Very recently, there was, there's a new candidate for Senate in, uh, in Alabama, and he has said specifically that he believes that some of these natural disasters in 9-11 was actually God punishing us for our sins as a country. Now, if you want to justify that, you can go to the Old Testament, and you can find those verses. They're there. They exist. But it's very interesting, when you come to the New Testament, when you look through the lens of Jesus, you begin to realize, even in the first century, Even in early Christianity, that idea that God punishes us by sending storms or hitting us with terrorists, like that's not actually the true purpose of God. And so when we flatten the Bible, we can use any number of scriptures from the Old Testament to justify any kind of position that we want. Some of you are already on edge. This is is unnerving stuff, but it should be because when either we avoid the Old Testament or we flatten it with the rest of Scripture, it becomes an easy coping mechanism that we don't have to be unsettled by the story that we find there. It becomes this safe thing that just reinforces what we've always believed rather than challenging us to come to the feet of Jesus with the right questions to recognize who he really is and what his story is really about. And I think that that's the true purpose of the Old Testament is it's to point us to Jesus If we let it fulfill its purpose of leading us to Jesus, the Bible will not fail us. 
And so we're not lopping off most of the story. We're not flattening it and saying, the Bible is a conclusion in and of itself, and that's the purpose of reading it, is just for me to live a better life, or for me to be able to defend my positions, or for me to just have a nice bedtime story, whatever it is, whatever we think the purpose is of the Bible, the scriptures specifically are there to point us to God. More specifically, God as he's revealed in Jesus. One of the scriptures that we're gonna come back to time and again in this series, and I kinda of wanna use it as almost like the framing point for everything we do, is the first couple of verses in Hebrews chapter one. We think this is probably written by Priscilla, who was one of the, the early uh, pastors in the early church, and she writes this. In the past, God spoke to us, our, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways. Okay, so in the past, God spoke to us through the prophets. You know, they considered Moses a prophet, they considered Isaiah and all these others, and they wrote all these things down. This is how God spoke to us in the past. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things, and through whom he also made the universe. And this is the key bit. We should, as Christians, and this is why we're called Christians, we should memorize this. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. And so time and again, what we see in the New Testament is these writers saying, yes, the scriptures are there and they're pointing us to God. They're offering this, us these glimpses of who God is, but the, the, the final word that God desired to speak, his best word was through Jesus, that the Bible is the partial revelation of God, but Jesus is the full revelation of what God is really like. Jesus is the exact representation. You wanna know what God looks like? Look to Jesus. You know, and we get in these debates about biblical interpretation using words like inerrant and infallible, and sometimes the conversations don't actually make sense because we're treating the scriptures in ways that they were never intended to be. We're assigning them these tasks that the scriptures were not supposed to have. And I've said it many times before that the, the Bible is essentially this progressive revelation of what God is really like. It's humanity waking up through the experience of God to know what he's like a little bit more and a little bit more. We didn't even plan it necessarily with, this, with the kind of environment that we've created in here this morning, but I love how the closer that these arrows get to the cross, they radiate, they're a little bit brighter, and they're a little bit brighter because they're receiving the light from the cross. And I think that's such a beautiful symbol for what we see in the Old Testament, that as humanity is experiencing God, encountering who he is, it's changing our perspective of what he's really like. And I think it's important to recognize here that God does not change. That's sometimes what we think when we hear about the Bible being the progressive revelation of God is that somehow God is changing. But God does not change, he is immutable. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. God has always looked like Jesus, but we haven't always realized that. And so it's not God who changes, but it's our understanding of God that has changed. You know, as five years old, I, I, I came to my dad and I said, Dad, is, is God like Superman? You know, that was my best point of reference when I was five years old. I see this guy, this Kate's Crusader, somebody's having trouble, there's a cat in the roof. Or, do you remember the one where there was a, a, a dinosaur at the museum that was frozen in a block of ice and the ice melts and then he reanimates and Superman has to go and fight the dinosaur? That sounded pretty much like what Jesus is to me. You know, I read the scriptures in my little kid Bible and it was basically the same thing. And my dad said, you know, oh, yeah, Ryan, in a way, um, you know, Jesus, God, is kind of like Superman. 
That was my understanding when it was five, and it helped. It helped me down the journey. But if I had stopped there and concluded when I was five years old that that's what, what God is really like, I would have missed out on everything that he's revealed to me up until this point. I had to grow up. I had to change my approach to God to recognize God's not changing, but I'm the one who is, as my experiences of him, as I witness him in my personal life, as I delve into scripture, as I worship him with community, both historical and global, my understanding of God changes. And so I like to think that the, the Old Testament, in a way, is the people of God continually asking these questions. God, what are you really like? You know, we use the word theology. That's what it literally means, words about God. We're saying, God, what are you really like? At the heart of everything, what, what are you really like? And I think the second question that the people of the Old Testament is asking is, God, when are you gonna fully reveal yourself to us? You know, that I love how much the, the Old Testament um, gives us permission to wrestle, to ask questions of God as part of our worship. We see it through the Psalms, we th see it through the prophets, we see it even in the kings that are really kind of in the know and are in the flow that they are asking, God, when are you going to reveal yourself to us? When are you going to come as you promised and, and show us the full version of what you're really like? And that the Old Testament, in fact, ends with these kinds of questions. And it sets us up so beautifully when we launch into the Gospels, when we encounter Jesus, the exact representation of his being, God begins to answer some of those questions. And Jesus himself even encourages us to approach the Old Testament in this way. In John chapter five, he says this, you study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. Isn't it easier just to come to the Bible asking for a list of do's and don'ts, of rights and wrongs? of how am I supposed to live my life? Give me the rules, give me the boundaries, give me the expectations, and I'll just follow that. It's a lot easier for us to do that. And I think a lot of the people in Jesus' day, that was their same perspective. When, I, when they were studying Torah, when they're learning how to practice their religion, and saying, what are we supposed to do to be on the inside and what makes us on the outside? And they're, so, um, they're staring at the thing in front of them, the scripture in front of them in such an unhealthy way that they can't see through the scriptures to the fact that they're always there to reveal the heart of God to us. And so I think Jesus' radical claims about himself, we have to take those seriously. That when Jesus says to us, the scriptures are there to testify to me, all these stories, these poems, these prophecies, all of these heroes and villains, they're there to point to me as the full revelation of what God is really like. We have to take Jesus seriously when we come to that. We can't relegate him to merely some sort of an enlightened spiritual teacher. This is something Jesus is very adamantly not advocating for himself. He's not just passing the baton of wisdom down to the next generation. He actually sees himself, he positions himself as the culmination of the story of God, of God revealing himself to mankind. And when you and I make Christianity about this right and wrong in and out, when we just make it about trying to live moral lives without Jesus at the center, that's when we tend to go askew. This is what Jesus is constantly challenging both the Pharisees and the Sadducees about. These are the, the experts in the scriptures. In our modern day, we would say it's maybe like, you know, the religious conservatives and the religious liberals. 
that they both are just staring at the scriptures in front of them and trying to ascertain what are we supposed to do? What are we supposed, how are we supposed to live our lives? What are we supposed to do about this, that, and the other? And they're forgetting the big questions. What is God really like? And I've been fascinated, especially with so many of the debates in Christianity over the past couple of years, that it's this constant smashing together of conservative perspectives and liberal perspectives on this thing and that thing and the other. And what I hear time and again is everyone is missing the point that it's about coming to Jesus. It's about Jesus transforming us from the inside out. It's about Jesus challenging us and comforting us and drawing us in and making us his people. And when we forget that, we enter into our little ideological corners and we start to argue that our interpretation of the scriptures is the best one. But time and again in the Gospels, we see Jesus challenging both the conservative point of view and the liberal point of view and saying, you're all missing, this is a huge exercise in missing the point because it's about coming to me. It's about relationship with me. I think a lot of our modern arguments are bad arguments because we're just trying to prove how right our tribe is, how well we can read these scriptures and we miss Jesus as both the plot and the theme of the story. And even the way that Jesus interacts with the scriptures, the Sermon on the Mount kind of ground zero for us as Christians. He says time and again, you've heard it said this, you've seen it written down like that, but I'm telling you that it's like this. And he begins to shake up the status quo of how people do Bible so that they begin to ask the right questions and come to him to be led. And of course, he's met by these Pharisaic perspectives, these Sadduceic perspectives that say, by what authority do you have to tell me what the Bible says? But how often do you and I do that too when we come to Jesus? well, what authority do you have to tell me what that means or what that's supposed to be or how I'm supposed to interact with this piece of the world? And again, we recognize Jesus is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his character. If you wanna know what God is like, if you wanna know what his heart for humanity is, you have to look at Jesus. And so the Bible is the partial revelation of God, but Jesus is the full revelation. I've told this story before, but several years ago, Phil Vischer, the creator of VeggieTales, had this radical uh, conviction that what he had been doing in all of his projects, as good as they were, was teaching children moral lessons using Bible stories, but that he wasn't actually doing what we as Christians purport to do, which is to lead people into living relationship with Jesus. And so he radically changed the mission of, of the work that he was doing with VeggieTales and all of his, like, his little animations and whatnot. And he's actually created so much amazing content over the past 10 years. In fact, our greenhouse, uh, this, this fall, our children's ministry uh, are using some of his content that's helping children how to engage with the stories in the Bible, but in a way that it not just is telling them this is how to be a good person, this is how to be a bad person, but it's actually teaching them how to, to, to walk into relationship with Jesus. And I love that that's the reorientation I think we're all being invited to. And so we're going to be looking at this story from Luke chapter 4. Um, this is very on, early on in Jesus's story. And the way that Luke tells it, this is right after Jesus has been baptized. He goes into the desert to be tempted uh, by the Satan. Um, and he's brought out of the desert. And this is kind of the, sort of the beginning of his ministry. We're going to be looking at this passage and kind of breaking it up because it's a bit of a long one. So we begin in uh, chapter, or verse 14 of chapter 4. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit. So this is him coming out of the desert. 
and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues and everyone praised him. That's really key. Remember, everybody liked Jesus at first, okay? Hold on to that, because it's gonna change. He went to Nazareth, okay, which is his hometown, where he had been brought up. It's right there in the scripture. I didn't need to give you that little insight. (laughs) And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it was written, the spirit of the Lord is on me, because he's anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has set me free, or he has sent me to proclaim the freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, and to proclaim the Lord's favor. And I love, so this is, Jesus is going back and he's picking out one of the main scriptures that we look at, what we call a messianic prophecy. That there's all these different prophecies, like 600 odd prophecies in the Old Testament about the the Messiah, about the the person who is to come, who's the representation of God and God's king. And this is one of the major, major ones, Isaiah 58 through 61. This is one of the ones we really hold up as that big question from the people of God, from Israel. God, when are you going to reveal yourself and how are we going to know what it looks like when it's you? And so he, he quotes from Isaiah 61 verses one and two, and then he jumps back to Isaiah 58, uh, verse 6, to, to bring out these words. And what's so important to recognize, what is so scandalous, is that when Jesus is reading from Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2, it should say, the Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor, uh, to set me to proclaim the freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind. And then it should come and say, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. That's the next verse in Isaiah 61. But Jesus doesn't read it. He stops there and he jumps back to Isaiah 58 and he draws in the rest to set the oppressed free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And this is really important, that he cuts out the bit about God's vengeance. So vengeance against whom specifically? The Gentiles. And he says, so you can already see now that this good news that Jesus is bringing already carries with it some sort of scandal. Let's continue reading at verse 20. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him, as you might expect. He began by saying to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. And so Jesus is interpreting the scriptures in the way that we're called to interpret them, to say, this has been about Jesus the whole time. And so God, Jesus is taking this well-known scripture that they would have kind of almost memorized, and he stops, he says, it's fulfilled today. I'm the one that, was, that it was prophesied about. I'm the Messiah. I'm the fulfillment of what God decided that he was going to do to rescue the world. And so what Jesus is saying is, not only am I the fulfillment of this prophecy, but I am the extension of God's will. I am the extension of God's authority. And so you can imagine what everybody's thinking when he says, today it's been fulfilled, and they're like, this is him? You're him? You're the guy? You're the one we're looking for? And so it continues on in verse 22. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they ask? Jesus said to them, surely you will quote the proverb to me, physician, heal yourself, and you will tell me, do here in your hometown what we've heard that you did in Capernaum. 
So it sends them into the, this furor. They're kind of, they're amazed at the way that he teaches, at, at what he's doing with the scriptures. And they're thinking, wow, this is really interesting. Perhaps this guy has something to say. And maybe if Jesus had left it there, he would have been popular. But that's not how our Jesus works, is it? So let's continue reading. Where does Jesus go? Verse 24, he continues on with his sermon. He says, truly I tell you, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine through the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. So what happens is Jesus reads this prophet Isaiah, he clips out the bit about taking the day of vengeance of our God, vengeance on the Gentiles, and then he tells the people these two Old Testament stories. He says, of all of the good Jewish widows that there were in the time of Elijah that he could have blessed, he chose to bless a Syrian woman, the woman who's on the outside, who's one of these Gentiles that, God, that you thought that God was going to take vengeance upon. And he says, then of all the lepers, of all the skin diseases that were around in the Middle East during the time, God sent Elisha to Naaman the Syrian, an outsider, somebody that you look down upon and you say, I can't wait until God shows up and and defeats these infidels, cuts out all of these bad guys so we can be reestablished as God's favorite children, that we can get our nation back from all of the people that are flooding it right now the Syrians, the Romans, and so on. And so he tells them these two stories. So you can imagine now what's happening as they're starting to listen to Jesus. And it continues on in verse 28. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. They got up, drove him out of the town, and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built in order to throw him off a cliff. But he walked right through the crowd and went on his way. I will not have done my job until you are throwing me off a cliff. Fortunately, we live in Florida. That's a little bit hard to come by. But maybe you'll throw me in Lake Ivanhoe. I don't know. The people, the Jews, were so threatened by how Jesus was willing to reinterpret the scripture that they were prepared to kill him. What does that tell you about their relationship with their Bible? Because what Jesus is doing is he's challenging their nationalistic tendencies. He's challenging their tribalistic tendencies. That they say, we are God's chosen people. We are his favorite children. God has given us this land and he's given us this border and someday God's gonna come in and beat up all the bad guys so we can be great again. And imagine all of a sudden if someone comes along and says, I'm the representation of God and you've got it wrong. God's not going to do that. But in fact, he's created space in his family for the least of these, for the people on the outside, for the not good enoughs. And they're gonna be able to come into the household as well. They're going to be able to sit at God's table and dine with him. And it threatens your identity at the core because you think it's about you and your tribe getting it right and that God is on your side and not theirs. Is it any wonder they were going to throw him off a cliff? Does that sound familiar? Does it feel a little too close to home for where the American church is right now? That we are so unhealthily tied to the scriptures, our perspective of the scriptures is so unhealthy that we use it to justify that we're the ones that are on the inside and that God's gonna come and take vengeance on everybody else. 
And as soon as we use the scriptures to justify our nationalism, our tribalism, whatever it is, say we're in and they're out, we're the favored ones and they're not, we miss Jesus in the midst of it. That perhaps he's calling us to confession and repentance. Perhaps he's calling us to open up our hearts, to open up our lives, to actually be the people of God that he's always destined for us to be. And as I said, this is less about us lowering our view of scripture, and it's more about us having a higher view of Christ. That when we open up the scriptures to let them be what they're there to be, to point us to Jesus, they are infallible. They are inerrant. It's been a while since I've given you a good N.T. Wright quote. This is what he says. Jesus. The Jesus we might discover, if we really looked, is larger, more disturbing, more urgent than we had ever imagined. We have successfully managed to hide behind other questions and to avoid the huge, world-shaking challenge of Jesus' central claim and achievement. It is we, the churches, who have been the real reductionists. We've reduced the kingdom of God to personal piety. The victory of the cross to comfort for the conscience. Easter itself to a happy escapist ending after a sad, dark tale. Piety, conscience, and ultimate happiness are important, but not nearly important as Jesus himself. And this is where I want us to dwell in this question. Do you take Jesus' word about himself seriously? Or have you missed the forest for the trees? How do you approach the scriptures? Do you avoid them altogether so you don't have to deal with the hard questions to, to be exposed to the wild and untamed version of God that we see in Jesus? Or have you co-opted them and reduced them and used them to prove that you're doing okay, that you're on the inside, that you don't have to change, everybody else does? Are you willing to accept the radical notion that the scriptures are there in order to point us to Jesus? That all these stories, all the prophecies, all the, the characters that we meet in the Old Testament are just a foretaste of what was to come. They're these signposts in the mist that we don't know exactly what it looks like, but we know that everybody's pointing us there, that we can find ourselves at the feet of the cross. This is where we go. This is what God is really like. I didn't know that, but I do now. And that it radically transforms you. Jesus redeems our small understandings of what God is really like. He lets God out of the box so he can be who he truly is. And I think we have to begin by recognizing that we're all orphans. We all have this limited understanding of God. We have this limited understanding of love. We have this in limited understanding of Jesus. But the moment that we recognize that's our current reality, we can begin to trudge into the mist, trusting the Holy Spirit will guide us and give us new experiences that challenge our previously assumed um, claims about who Jesus really is. Because he gives us that compass for getting to know God. And for me, the journey of really learning what the scriptures are for and how to engage with them has actually changed my thinking. It's freed me up to actually love the Bible more because I'm not making it small. I'm not interested in just reinforcing my position. I wanna be haunted by it. I wanna be shaken up by what I encounter in scripture because I want it to point me to Jesus. 
And what it ultimately does is it leads me into worship to recognize that maybe this is actually good news. That perhaps you and I in our small thinking have reduced good news to just lists of right and wrong inside and outside and that we've missed Jesus' moving in the midst of it. But Jesus time and again was challenging Israel in his day too, was to say, you think that God's gonna come and just defend you and push everybody to the outside. But maybe it's actually better than that. I think Jesus is calling the American Christian church to the same today. Can you let go? Can you open up? Can you let God reveal himself to you through Jesus in a way that it really makes our message genuinely good news? This is the work that Jesus is inviting us to. I want to invite you to stand with me. If this is hard for you to hear, if this is insulting, if this is difficult, that's okay. That's okay. You don't have to agree with me, but you do have to listen. I'm the one with the microphone. Like I said, next week, we're gonna be looking at how those early followers of Jesus, how they held the scriptures, how it was this encounter with Jesus in his life or even after his ascension that shook up everything that they knew about God and led them into a new and better way. But for this week, we're just gonna settle into this to recognize that when we worship Jesus, he's revealing himself to us, he's opening us up to deeper relationship with God and that we are the ones that are transformed. We are the ones that are interpreted. We are the ones that are led into deeper freedom so that we can be for the world uh, who God calls us to be. And so let's pray and let's worship this wild and untamed and beautiful and dangerous Jesus ruptures all of our status quo assumptions and leads us into truth. So Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you. We thank you that you gave us your son, Jesus Christ, that you pointed to him on the day he was born, that you pointed to him at his baptism, that you pointed to him through the Sermon on the Mount, through his miracles, through his teaching, and that you pointed to him in his crucifixion and ascension and said, this is what I look like. This is who I am. This is your new standard for understanding my character and my will. Lord, I pray if there's anything in us that holds us back from receiving Jesus as he truly is, that we would be able to name that thing, whether it's fear or control or comfort, whatever it is, and we would lay it at your feet. We'd say, God, we need, to re- we need you to reveal yourself to us anew because we've lost the plot. We're stuck in the mist. We need the signposts. We need the things that point us to the cross as the best demonstration of what you're really like. And so, Lord, as we worship here, we give you permission to send your spirit to move in us and through us that we leave this place rejoicing anew because we've encountered your goodness. And we pray all of these things in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. This has been the City Beautiful Church podcast. To stay connected, follow us on social everywhere at City Beautiful CH. We hope you join us again soon.